podcast made by, for, and about the Oscars. And now, here's your host, Ethan Alexander. All right, hello, 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 hello. Welcome back to Fans on the Run, my favorite Beatles podcast. Uh, I'm not being biased or anything. Who am I kidding? Yes, I am. Uh, you know, e- even after this hiatus, I- I'm still at a loss for how to introduce the show. Uh, again, I'm always taking suggestions at fansontherunpodcast at gmail.com. But enough of my aimless meandering. Uh, we-, we have a great guest for you today. He's the author of the Let It Be installment of the 33 and a Third series, the Bob Dylan biography Dylan, and he's written for the New York Times, Rolling Stone, Spin, and the LA Times. Please give a warm welcome to Steve Mateo. Steve, welcome to Fans on the Run. Thanks, Ethan. It's great to be here. So I, I like to kick kick things off these days with uh, with a non-Beatles question. What other music are you listening to? Well. You know, it's it's funny because I I find myself um, keep getting deeper and deeper into that time period um, with the Beatles in the 60s, mm-hmm. but specifically uh, very much mid-60s sort of British music. You know, the Rolling Stones, the Kinks, the Who, uh, the Yardbirds, um, you know, the British Invasion Acts, you know, Jerry and the Pacemakers... Dave Clark Five, Petula Clark, Lulu. Um, I'm just, I just can't seem to get away from it. I just, I find myself getting deeper and deeper into it. Um, I, I don't know. Bands I mean, that, you know, maybe weren't as popular, you know. I, I've been yeah. on a major Yardbirds kick for the past few months, too. I love the Yardbirds. Uh, the only bigger kick I've been on is a Hollies kick. I love the Hollies. I mean, you know, it's what's great, too, is, I mean, um, I've interviewed Graham Nash. Uh, I've interviewed Jeff Beck. Um, you know, I've had a chance to interview these people. And it's, you know, it, it, you know it's, it's amazing, you know. Incredible. So, uh, uh, you know, why not? What, what was Graham Nash like? <laughs> well, you know, it's funny because I've actually interviewed him a number of times. And, um, you know, he's... He's one of those people who um, he's always he's always really nice. And he it, it, he doesn't just treat you like, oh, this is just another interview. Um, he works very hard at it. Um, I get a sense from Graham that he doesn't take his career for granted. Um, you know, I think the British musicians of that period, you know, they grew up, you know, it was hard. You know, they grew up just after the war. Yeah. You know, the war came to, you know, came to England. It didn't come to the United States, you know, uh, you know, World War Two. So um, he's very thankful of of what he was able to accomplish. You know, uh, you know, it's funny because most of the times that I interviewed him, it was really more about Crosby, Stills and Nash. But then I interviewed him when his uh, when he put out his autobiography and we had a chance to get a bit more into depth you know, talking about the Hollies. And I I love the Hollies because I love vocal harmony. I mean, that's one of my absolute, you know, favorite things about, you know, pop music. It's almost sacrilege, but I've said on this show before, and I'll say it again, the Hollies had better harmonies than the Beatles. I mean, you you could definitely say that. I mean, you know, I mean, I love, you know, the Everly Brothers, the Beach Boys, the Hollies. Um, you know, I just love, you know, when you get siblings singing together, I mean, the early Bee Gees, the albums that they did in the sixties, uh, I mean, there's just nothing like that music. You know, the, the vocal blend, uh, is it just extraordinary. So, you know, I, I love that. I just love that whole period, you know, Liverpool, London, Manchester, Birmingham, um, they're just, it's just so rich, you know? Um, you, you mentioned interviewing. I want to ask, uh, what has there been an interview that's made you the most starstruck? You know, it's funny because when I do interviews, 
the only thing I ever really worry about is my tape recorder failing, <laughs> you know, which, which has happened a couple of times. Like I'm never really like nervous or, you know, whatever. I mean, there, there are certain interviews that have really, you know, that have stood out, you know, certainly, but uh, I always feel very comfortable because I, I love music. And so I'm talking about music. I mean, unless the person is sort of, you know, they're difficult, but, you know, most of the time, you know, people have been, you know, they've been great. And I, and it's funny because it almost seems sometimes like the bigger the star, the, the most famous or the, the greater artist, musician are the easiest to talk to. They're the nicest people. And I interviewed Tony Bennett and he was just amazing. You know, Quincy Jones was another person. It reached a point in the interview with Quincy where he was interviewing me, basically. Really? <laughs> you know? more or less it seemed yeah i mean so i mean i paul simon was another person i interviewed who was just so relaxed and like no handlers around and he wasn't going anywhere i mean he was just gonna hang out and talk and so i mean i could you know i could go on and on but i mean i've been i've been i've been pretty lucky the circumstance and again my my fear of my tape recorder not working is is more the sort of thing that would create anxiety um you know than anything else and, and now i think it's it's a good point in the show well it's it's not even a point in the show we're still starting the show oh god i do not have a way with words um we go back to the beginning steve how did you first discover the beatles I mean, I'm of a certain age where, you know, I was a child when they just started. I mean, I don't think I remember exactly, say, when they were on Ed Sullivan. I think I was probably too young. But I can remember them, you know, being on the radio and having um, older cousins who had the records or like the fan magazines. You know, I could distinctly remember that. Um, you know, so it's, it's a little hazy in the beginning, you know, like the very, very beginning. I mean, I can remember some, somebody's older brother having Sergeant Pepper. Um, you know, I think where I really started to really be really cognizant of the Beatles quote unquote was, was at the end in some respects, you know, um, you know, when Let It Be was coming out and they were breaking up, you know. But, I mean, they were always there. I mean, you're just kind of a, a child. I mean, I grew up in New York, so we had WABC AM. And I mean, so they just played the Beatles all the time. And that was so much a part of that, uh, you know, listening to the radio, you know, in the back seat of the family car or having a transistor radio. Um so yes, I am old. <laughs> you know, you're only as old as you feel. Right. What is your uh, your earliest memory of the Beatles? I mean, you know, it's just probably like you know Eleanor Rigby. I mean, because I can distinctly remember being with these sort of older cousins who had the fan magazine with the lyrics of the song and like reading along to the lyrics. You know. Um, uh, you know, it's so it's just like you're reading this and it's, you know, you're, you know, you're like, what, you know, however old I was, you know, eight years old, whatever. I, I'm not, it's not totally making sense to me, but it's, you know, there's, there's no context for it at that age. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. You're, you're just a kid and you're just lucky enough to have been, you know, of an age where, you know, the, the Beatles AM hits singles were on the radio, you know? And and so you said uh, you really finally became cognizant towards the end. Uh, how did how did your love of the Beatles go from there? You know, I mean, I, it's funny because I think that you know after they broke up, you know, then the the solo albums would come out. So you were sort of, you know, learning more about them and discovering more about them. You know, as all things must pass comes out as the McCartney album comes out as imagine comes out, you know, as, 
you know, it don't come easy is coming out. And it's just, it's just part of the sort of the education, you know, before you really understand again, the sort of, you know, the, 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 the sort of, you know, context of it and that this, the importance of it, you don't, you don't really learn that till later, you know? So you're just listening and you're just, you're just like a sponge. And, you know, I can remember getting my first, own sort of real stereo when the concert for Bangladesh triple album set was being released and they were playing it, you know, like all the way through on the radio, which obviously you can't do today, you know, because of the, you know, because of the digital, you know, copyright act, whatever it's called, you know? So I'm, you know, that's kind of where I sort of come in where you really are starting to get like, this stuff is important, you know? You know, I can, you know, remember listening to Bangladesh and it's like, you know, um, George Harrison and Ringo Starr and, you know, um, Billy Preston and Leon Russell. And it's like, wow, (laughs) this is pretty amazing. You know, and it's like live music, you're hearing live music. And I had not been to a concert at that point. And, you know, that would that's two or three years down the road, you know. So, you know, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of like, that's a tipping point for me, you know? It's, it's always a, like a a milestone in a Beatle fan is getting their first book. What was the first Beatle book you remember? You know, that's tough because I, I know that I started reading about music like really intently when I think it was one of the first Doors biographies came out. I, I think it was the No One Here Gets Out Alive one, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. So that would be, you know, I'm 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 probably just out of high school at that point. I don't remember necessarily reading music books that closely in high school, but I can't, I can't say for sure. I mean, I think the books the first books that really stand out that have like a real impression on me are probably like, you know, the Hunter Davies authorized biography. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that might've been the first ones, but there's probably, there's probably other books that I'm just, I'm not remembering, there was you know, the, clearly the, the Nick Schaffner Beatles forever one in the seventies. Yeah. That one maybe came before. It's, it's hard to tell, but yeah, that, the, 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 the Schaffner book is definitely, you know, um, one of my favorite early memories of reading a Beatles book. I love that book, but there are mistakes in that book. You know, there are definitely errors uh, of, of fact, but the, the passion and the love and the knowledge is there. You know, there's no question about it. And it's a beautiful book too, you know? And, and so, well, th- this is kind of a sad question, but do you remember where you were when you heard that John Lennon had died? Yes, I was I was at a girlfriend's apartment and we were watching Monday Night Football. Ah. And, uh, you know, so that's how the, the news was delivered. You know, and again, I think sometimes when these things happen, I think that you just the sort of gravity of it is it's, you know, it's 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 stunning and it's it's earth shack earth shaking but you're sort of trying to live you're, you're living your life and you're young and i think you know what do they say youth is wasted on the young you know i think that you know you're just sort of you know you're just the maturity level is not there enough to really sort of grasp you know the whole thing as it's happening you know you know it's funny because i always find that that time period is it's a real sea change because, you know, you know, John was assassinated literally within weeks of Ronald Reagan being elected president, you know? Mm -hmm. So this is, this is really a sea change, you know? And I don't think we're really aware of AIDS yet at that point. So this is, you know, people say there's so many times that the sixties sort of ended, (laughs) you know, it kind of ended, you know, it ended obviously at the end of the sixties, you know, it ended when the Beatles broke up or, you know, some people say, well, it ended when the, you know, when we pulled out of Vietnam or when the draft ended in 73 or Altamont or, 
you know, you know, when the Manson murders happened, when Woodstock, you know, so to me, really, I think the 60s really ended when 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 Ronald Reagan was was elected and John Lennon was assassinated, which were within a few weeks of each other. You know, it's so interesting because that period from when Kennedy is assassinated and the Beatles appear on Ed Sullivan is only what, you know, a, a a, not what, what six weeks yeah. or something like that and so and then the period from when reagan is elected and lenin is assassinated is within like weeks you know it's a month maybe you know it's maybe a month so it's interesting how those two things are kind of almost like bookend each other in some ways you know uh, i think it speaks to how how prolific or how important the 60s were that uh, they managed to somehow continue until John Lennon died. Yeah. I mean, the seventies are the, are, you know, this definite continuation of the, of everything about the sixties, you know what I mean? So, um, you know, I mean, look, there's when the, I think when the punk thing happens, you know, there's certainly a change. I mean, you, you know, there's definitely a change comes comes around you know when the sex pistols come around and the ramones and you know patty smith you know television um you know some of this was already happening with Iggy pop you know when he was in the stooges and you know the mc5 and mm -hmm. the sort of downtown new york scene is kind of happening before punk you know bef before that before the musical aspect of it you know just like the the you know the swing in 60s just like the, you know, before the Beatles, you know, you had in London, you had, you know, Mary Quant and, you know, David Bailey and, you know, uh, you know, David Hockney. And you had art and photography and fashion, you know, already happening before the music is happening, you know. It's just the music happened to fall into place. The music sort of becomes the soundtrack. And but I think the music sort of partially comes out of that. You know, it, it just because the music is a is a sort of popular exponent of this stuff happening where in some respects, you know, the, the photography and the fashion and especially the art is more sort of underground. And when I say art, I mean, you know, obviously visual art and photography, you know, that stuff is more of sort of the underground kind of cutting edge, you know, where the music becomes sort of the popularization that's, you know, reaching a wide variety of people, especially young people, very young people in, in, in terms of pop music where, you know, it's, you know, really, really, you know, you know, teens and preteens, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, now I, I kind of want to start asking about the, uh, you know, Let It Be book, <clears throat> which, you know, you were gracious enough to send me. I, I should say that. Um, but it it's. I, I never really delved that deep into the into the get back sessions. You know, I always knew little bits and pieces, and I'm I'm sure we're going to find out a lot more later this year, with all the yes. with the Peter Jackson and the new get back book. Um, but as I was reading, I, I was coming up with some questions. Um, would Would you say that the Beatle inner circle? Was was frustrated with the transition from Nems to Apple, even like pre Alan Klein. I mean, like everything, everything with the Beatles in terms of the end and and Let It Be and Abbey Road and all of that. And this stuff had, had been festering for a long time. You know, I mean, if you go back to when the Beatles are leaving C Candlestick Park in a helicopter. George Harrison basically said, you know, that's it. You know, the Beatles are over. <laughs> you know, that's kind of it, you know. I mean, obviously, that isn't the case. I mean, yeah. you know, Revolver was already finished. And uh, they would, you know, they would do what would be their most important album, you know, which which is Sgt. Pepper. And, of course, we would still get Abbey Road and, you know, the a lot of the music that was collected on Magical Mystery Tour and, you know, the White Album, you know. So it's not over. I mean, their best single would still would not come out till 68, which is Hey Jude, in my opinion. So, you know, I mean, after after Brian dies, after Sgt. Pepper, I mean, I think that's the biggest sort of mark that begins the sort of slow. It's kind of it's a slow death. Yeah. <laughs> you know, 
thankfully. You know, look, everything, everything has a peak, you know. You know, Neil Young said every every wave is new until it breaks, you know. So there's there's different periods where they sort of it's you know, it's like a marriage or any kind of relationship. Um, there's always going to be peaks and valleys. You know, some relationships do end, you know, some end quickly, some take a long time to end, you know. You know, rock bands are are very volatile, you know, they're very volatile sort of things, you know, and the Beatles are the biggest rock band that ever existed in the eye of the storm of the 60s in London, you know, and obviously Liverpool before that. So, um, you know, it's, it's an age thing, too. I mean, they started out, you know, very, very young. Um, and, you know, they grew up in the Beatles, you know, and at the different points, obviously they got married and had children and, you know, moved on, you know? So, um, you know, it's just that, you know, Abbey Road and let it be Mark the end end. But once Brian died, you know, that, that, I mean, look, that was, that was coming anyway, because who knows if, you know, Brian's contract was coming due that summer, uh, so who knows if they would have continued on with him or what his involvement would have been. They they were taking over more and more of the sort of, um, you know, stuff that Brian was doing anyway. I mean, the big change is is when is is when um, is when Klein comes in because Klein cleans house at yeah. that point. You know, once Alan Klein comes along. You know, he fires um, like Alistair Taylor. And... Yeah. And I mean, this goes on. I mean, this this bleeding goes on, you know, for the longest time. You know, I mean, there's very few people who store who sort of still remain. I mean, I guess it's really Neil. Neil Aspinall really is the person who sort of stuck it out the longest and went on to run Apple until his death. You know, so. Um, you know. I try not to focus too much, you know, on the sort of end and the the sort of all the kind of business machinations. I mean, Apple to the Core, I think, covers a lot of that. And there's one other book, and I'm forgetting the name of it, that or a more recent book that's you never of give me co- your money, right? You know, that sort of cover. Like to me, a lot of that stuff, it 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 leaves me a little cold. I'm not a math person, you know. I'm not a numbers person. I'm Whichever side of the brain is, you know, not that, <laughs> you know. So a lot of that stuff is just like it's like watching paint dry. I mean, some people are fascinated by that stuff, and I think if it's presented in the right way, I, I think it, it can be very interesting, and it it adds another layer of, of 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 context and subtext to the story of the Beatles because it is it is significant. But I, I would always, rather read. I find the like business end of things towards like the end with Apple like a really interesting kind of psychological profile. Right. The, 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 the way that Richard DeLillo covers it in the, in the last cocktail party, where I think he weaves it in and out with his own kind of personal story and, and gives you a lot of insight into the day by day and the various characters. But when it's just sort of a, just sort of a rendering of the, you know, the sort of, you know, nuts and bolts of it all. It's just like, oh, my God. It's just you realize why these bands break up. It, it's almost inevitable. You know what it is? It's just so much money involved. Yeah. And there's there's people who are involved in it who that's all. The only reason they're there is because of the money aspect of it or the fame or the power aspect of it. I'm more interested in the music. You know, how do they write the songs? How do they make the music? You know, um, you know that that kind of thing is more interesting to me. You know, what do they? Where do they hang out? Who do they hang out with? What books do they read? Where do they go on holiday? You know, it's you know that stuff is more interesting to me. You know, well, I, I have a bit of a general question. Uh, where do you think the the con, like the general consensus of the get back let it be sessions being so miserable come from? I mean, you know, the way that. The way the original film is cut, it's very sort of, you know, dark kind of, you know, it, it's just it's a little disjointed. It's it, you know, there, the, it kind of it kind of before the climax, there's definitely this kind of sort of claustrophobic sort of, you know, these guys are just kind of maybe not getting along so well. H- having said all that, I'm I'm a fan of Michael Lindsay Hogg 
Uh, I interviewed him for my Let It Be book. He's a great guy. He's done a lot of amazing stuff in music and out of music. And he's he's a he's a unique person. He's a really interesting guy. He's an artist. Um, he's very very self-effacing, very um, mild-mannered. Um, you know, he has a he has a very important impact on sort of the evolution of music on television, music well, videos. Well, he was um, one of the main people behind Ready Steady Go. Yes. Yeah. And so um I think it becomes sort of this critical mass of like, well, Rolling Stone said it's, you know, a depressing movie, so we're all supposed to hate it. <laughs> yeah. You know, because they were like, you know, the be all end all rock Bible there for the longest time. I'm sure that, you know, the others around at that time, you know, Cream and Crawdaddy and, you know, whoever else also hated it. And, and you know, so therefore that, you know, it becomes this, you know, cr- there's definitely this pack mentality with the music press particularly back then it was so small and very sort of insular and very sort of east coast you know you, you know rolling stone you know was you know um didn't move out to the west coast i'm sorry the rolling stone went backwards i mean they were out they were sort of out west but a lot of the people that wrote for them were in new york too or it was more of a sort of san francisco take on things you know rather than rather than the sort of southern california thing so, um, you know, you know, when I did the book, and this is long before the whole Peter Jackson thing, when I did the book, it was clear to me from the people that I spoke with that it wasn't all this depressing sort of thing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That um, it was, there was a lot of really funny stuff. You know, I say in the book, I believe that, you know, there's people that said that, you know, John would just literally walk in a room and people would fall on the floor laughing because he was such a cut up, you know? So, um, you know, I hope they don't just do a whitewash with this new documentary that's coming out. That's, but that's what I'm would worried be, about. But it would be nice to kind of see the other side that, that, that there, there was. I mean, look, this is, some of this is revisionism. It's like with the Let It Be Naked. It's very much sort of taking the Let It Be album and sort of now creating something different with it, which I don't, you know, that's fine. I like I like well, how do you feel about let it be naked? I mean, when you listen to it, it is kind of all cleaned up and it has this nice flow and it's like a real album. And, you know, so yeah, that's great. On the other hand, you know, the all the little snippets and stuff is, you know, how I know it and how I grew up with it. And it's part of the charm of it, you know, the sort of cinema verite fly on the wall kind of thing now the fly on the wall disc was a major missed opportunity because you're just getting little segments of things which you know to me what they should have done and hopefully they will do is first of all they should have the entire rooftop concert on a disc you know vinyl and cd um oh i'd buy the hell out of that they they should also have at least one if not two discs of all the sort of best um, takes of covers that they did of, of other people's material of, um, you know, songs that would go on to be on, you know, Abbey road on, on solo albums, how much of that they can do now though, at this point, because they've already done, um, you know, a white album and an Abbey road expanded versions and because they've already done some expanded versions of some of the solo albums you know i don't know how they're going to do that um well there's, I, you know, there's I, 96 I, I, hours of nagra real tape yeah but a, but a lot of that i i think some of the best of that now we have heard some of the best of that because of the abbey road expanded edition the you know even the white album to some degree ex- expanded edition um you know, whatever the, some of the solo stuff, I mean, there's going to be a conflict between, you know, we don't know what Harrison is, uh, his estate is going to do. There's going to be a new, all things must pass. You know, we don't know what's going to be done with that. You know, there was so much stuff that went on, you know, during the time of the Beatles of George's stuff that ends up on all things must pass. And even later releases. I mean, I, you know, we go pretty far down the road where George is still, 
sort of redoing things that he did while he was in the Beatles. Like not you know? guilty in 78. Right. So, um, you know, it's, but this is great. This is fun. I mean, the fact that there's still things that they can find to put out, I welcome these reissues, you know, I, I know that a lot of the bootleg community, they shrug their shoulders because they've had they've been listening to this stuff for 20, they 30, have, 40 they have years. They have B roads and their 83 right. disc sets. Right. I, you know, and God bless them, you know, and I'm I'm I, I love all that, you know. Um it's fun. All that bootleg stuff, especially when they sort of like almost create their own albums and the packaging and the liner notes and I, I'm a sucker for that stuff, you know. I love I'm not a bootleg buyer. I never was. Um, but you know, people have been kind over the years to gift me with some of this material and it's, you know, it's endlessly fascinating. It just, to me, there's no bottom, you know, I just, I love it, you know, and it's done with love. I believe a lot of these bootleggers over the years, they haven't done it to get rich. No, I mean, they, it's, they do it for the love. And I mean, now most of what they do is they don't even sell this stuff. They just kind of all trade cdrs or whatever they don't there's they don't they don't do that anymore it's all just fun it's just it's a community you know at, at this point it's it's mostly people on forums saying just sharing them with people right exactly for free right which is which is the way it should be exactly you know and funny enough one of the questions i was going to ask you is how important are the bootlegs out there in telling the story of these sessions i mean i think it's really important because there, there there's so much of the information and the actual music that will never be officially released you know because because they're you know they're music companies and they're not just gonna put every last note out there you know because i think they are trying to give you know people some you know some, somewhat you know of a kind of value product you know um you know, I mean, it's not, you know, King Crimson where, yeah. you know, they put out, you know, and, you know, look, if I had the money, I would buy that King Crimson set. I would love to. Well, so hear. would I. No. Yeah. And then I Robert mean, Frick yeah. would be very happy with both of us. Right. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm not, um, King Crimson is not one of my favorite groups of all time, but I do, I, I particularly love the, the really early Crimson, especially the first couple of albums. Like the ones I, with I, I was Lake. A, Right. I was a fan of, of Fripp when he went off and did things with, you know, David Byrne and, and David Bowie and Brian Eno. And, you know, I saw Robert Fripp perform live during, you know, that period, you know, which is really amazing. <laughs> I've seen that, let me tell you. So, um, you know, they've just put out now a, a John Mayall 35 CD I saw that. box set, you know, oh which again, God. I mean, I would love to, I, I can I cannot afford that. I would love, and the record company is not going to send it to me. I mean, I've got a lot of that music. I think I've got everything that Mayhall's ever done because I'm a Mayhall fan and I, I'm fascinated by the blues breakers and, you know, all the people who sort of come out of, you know, the blues breakers, you know, Peter Green and Mick Taylor and Eric Clapton and the Mark Allman band. And, you know, the list is kind of endless, yeah. you know. Um. There, there's something you mention in the book that, and you actually mentioned it fairly early on, and um, you mention a 2004 DVD release of Let It Be. Well, there was supposed to be one. That was when I was interviewing people like Michael Lindsay Hogg for the book. He said, "Yeah, there's going to be a release," and uh, they interviewed me for extra material and blah blah blah. And you know, it never happened. You know, M my guess is that after George died, I think there was a sense of reviving the project because I think of all of them, I think George hated it the most, and so. I think that they were going to eventually put it out. Now, I don't know why it was not put out, you know, what the reason is. Um, but it, you know, it went on the back burner again. I mean, it's just, you know, it just, it's one of the, you know, it's so funny that this whole Peter Jackson movie has been delayed 
you know, several times because of the pandemic. It's almost like this project is cursed. It's on brand. You have to rem- right. You know, you have to remember, too, that, you know, Michael Lindsay Hogg did the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus, you know, F, you know, before Let It Be. And that was shelved for years because the Stones were like one of the last ones to come on and perform at like five o'clock in the morning. And Mick felt that their performance was really lackluster because they were up for so many hours and because they felt some of the other performers, particularly obviously the Who, oh, were yeah. so much better. So poor Michael Lindsay Hogg. <laughs> Guy can't get a released uh, major music film out there. Right. Well, they did put it out on VHS, yeah. if you remember. And I b- believe Lit was it was it ever put out on Laserdisc? Let it be. Yeah. I don't remember. I yes. always forget this. Let it be. I okay. think it was right. on Laserdisc, right. Right. VHS, but it, and did... Betamax. Betamax. Okay. But never it never came out on DVD and, and it never obviously it's never been released on Blu-ray. You know, the, the Beatles anthology has never come out on Blu-ray which is kind of amazing. I mean, it originally came out on VHS and then very quickly came out on DVD. Well, it makes sense why Anthology wouldn't be on Blu-ray, though. And why not? Well, because um, I'm sure a lot of those interviews were were filmed in the 90s on videotape, which can't really be upscaled to 1080p or 4K or what have you. There's... I'm sorry, my phone is ringing. (laughs) I was going to unplug it and I completely forgot. I'm, I'm, I apologize. No well, it just sounds more real. So you know what? It's it's Michael Lindsay Hogg. Yes. And his ears are burning, and he heard us talking, and so he's going to he's going to he's going to correct us on on Is all that we've talked about. Is this the first fans about. on the run call in? <laughs> so you know, see, I think there are ways to fix all that stuff because I I wrote about the recent um I wrote about the recent um. Um, what was it? The, the, the Pink Floyd, the delicate sound of thunder, mm-hmm. which is, which has been redone. And I think there are ways to, to take all that stuff and upscale it and whatever, whatever these kids do to make this stuff look good yeah. and, and make it widescreen on a Blu-ray. So I think there are ways to do that. And, you know, I, even though it may not look the best, I, I do see Apple in, in the future, reissuing the anthology on blu-ray yeah they'll do it they'll, they'll i don't do think it. there's any question about it it'll happen there there are it'll some happen. things with the beatles stuff that you know it's just a matter of time before they do it like they, they yes. will put out the shea stadium stuff like because the, the, i would i would think so but you never know because you know the, the, the legal see, situation that's a weird one. you know i thought was resolved after the the eight days a week film like the Beatles ended I don't think up just buying the rights. I don't think it's strictly a legal thing. Most of most, if not, I don't know how much with the actual percentages, but a good deal of the Shea Stadium, the audio of it, is it's not the concert. It's you know it, because because it was it was poorly recorded yeah. because it was so loud, and at that time they didn't have the kind of equipment to properly record something like that, and the, and they're. You know, their level of live musicianship at that point, and everybody knows this, was not, you know, the best, yeah. you know? But at, at that point, uh, I'm not even terribly worried about that because, you know, there are tons of live Beatles recordings in high quality. If if you're watching the Shea Stadium, you're most likely watching it. Like, you want to see the Beatles in this, you know, giant stadium full of people, this iconic event. Yes, I agree. Yeah. And I, I feel like the audio might even take a bit of a backseat to that. I'm sure that they can fix it. I'm sure there's ways to, again, you know, they can do things, you know, like what, like when they did the, um, when they did the Hollywood Bowl, um, they really were able to fix that and clean it up. Now, of course, Hollywood Bowl was a much, a, a much smaller, you know, more, uh, you know, acoustic sort of venue. It's a place for music. There's no question about it. Uh, I was able to interview Giles Martin um, when that was put out for an article that I did. And um, maybe they can use some of that equipment. But I think more of the problem with the Hollywood Bowl was 
was was the screaming <laughs> where i think with the shea stadium it just they, it was bigger the problems were bigger than that you know it just was so, not recorded well right because because the shea stadium is a this huge baseball stadium that can seat 55,000 people where the hollywood bowl is probably i don't know maybe 10 15,000 and it you know it was a proper stage you know it was it's more of an acoustic venue a properly acoustic venue uh actually you know what what's a uh a potential release that you'd like to see out of the beatles camp um like if you, you know, if you went to apple and you had veto power what's the thing you would want put out you know i just think there's so much it's all you can see it on on youtube there's so much more live stuff beyond beyond the eight days a week movie there's just so much i mean to me i think they should put it all out i think anything anything that's of the beatles that is even marginally good audio quality it should be put out if it's marginally good audio and video it should be put out i mean you have full concerts okay i know some of these concerts are you know they're only 20 or 30 minutes and some of them repeat, but I mean, you know, you look, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. You've seen, you've seen some of this stuff. Some of it is just, it's, it's the sound is fine. And the, and the visuals are beautiful. Yeah. Some, like some the, of the stuff the in festival color. hall stuff in Australia, they, they right. remastered it last year and it's, it's right. beautiful. I would love to see all of that. Everything, everything that they can find that, was done on television that still exists that is still you know that is available wherever yeah i mean i know some things were have been wiped through the years you know they weren't kept through no fault of the beatles or brian epstein yeah but i mean i would just all of that i would love to be able to just sit down you know for three hours or four hours and you know i love the ron howard movie but i almost think that what they should have do is there should be like a companion to it that's just the music yeah you know what i mean and nothing else no interviews you know? no whoopi goldberg yeah i mean i don't i don't i don't want to see that stuff go away but i just think there should be two separate you know because it's just it's so exciting mm-hmm. you know for what whatever whatever shows may occasionally lack in in a level of musicianship or um sound quality there is just there's an electricity and an excitement to to see that and witness that it is so it's just there's very few things more thrilling in life than seeing that stuff you know i mean the whole washington concert should be available you know that entire concert digitally all right well it should be you should be able to go on amazon and click and they send the blu-ray to your house legally i agree <laughs> you know i mean I, I i i don't know if i'm answering your question completely because i know that when we're done with this um i'm gonna think of other things that you know um that i that i would like to see um so they, they could even do like a, a collector's choice series you know like the washington the the budokan festival hall shay and you know pick yeah. m- pick maybe like oh a dozen or half a dozen right you don't have to buy them all yeah you know and of course the the people like us and and the whole all the beatles peoples as i call them they're going to buy them all yeah there's that's just who we are you or i are not going to just buy you know three however many they put out we're just gonna yeah we're just gonna buy them all and i i think when they're on blu-ray like that i think it's great because when you you can have friends over and you can just put it on it's very easy i'm always amazed by people well i don't have a blu-ray player really (laughs) do you have a toaster (laughs) you know i mean blu-ray players are you know you can get you can get a state-of-the-art blu-ray player probably for like 150 dollars you know probably uh i've spent the past few years upgrading my my beatles dvd collection over to blu-ray so you know the criterion hard day's night and all that stuff wow that's great stuff uh, and so now I, I I like to ask the the biggest broadest question of the show: What do the Beatles mean to you, and how have they changed your life? 
you know, I think it's been a thing that's evolved over the years, you know. Um, I think I've always loved the Beatles. I guess I didn't realize they were my favorite group of all time until later in life. Um, I think that, again, it just it's like an evolving thing. I think that what I think the big sort of change came was when I when I wrote the Let It Be book. You know, I mean, I was prior to that, I was getting more and more into them where I was, you know, um, getting more books about them and trying to learn more about them. And, you know, um, you know, I could always remember, you know, when you're kind of hanging out when you're at that age, when you're, you know, out of high school or even out of college and hanging out with people and like listening to the white album, it's like this fun thing. And, you know, but I think once, I think once I, when I, even before the book, because I was writing about, I, I was writing about, you know, Beatles related stuff in terms of my journalism before I did the, before I did the book, you know? So, um, I think it's just this always evolving thing, you know? I think it's always, I think there were times when, you know, maybe sort of in the 80s, it was sort of like, it was almost like a little bit of a sense of like, well, that's kind of the past and I'm now into all this new music and, you know, uh, when you're in college and you're in your 20s and I was listening to whatever the music was of that time. And being somebody who was a music journalist, most of what I was writing about was new music, you know? So writing about sort of reissues and music from the past doesn't really start to become a big thing until the sort of CD age and they start reissuing everything on CD. Mm -hmm. So all of this old music starts getting a new life and it becomes like history. You know, after John died, you know, I think there was a, you know, this sort of going back to the Beatles and going back to John and, and trying to understand more of the history of it. You know, you'd get books like, you know, um, the, 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 the Peter Brown book. Oh, you, know, uh, you never give me become, money. Uh, right. Oh, wait, no, uh, The no, Love I, You Make. The Love You Make becomes, so it becomes like, oh yeah, right. All this stuff happened. You know, I think in the late 80s, I think that there's this sort of backlash to the kind of 80s and yuppies and, you know, all of that synthesizer, horrible music. And I think people start, you know, really discovering the 60s again and kind of in the mid to late 80s. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that's where it kind of begins. But, you know, but you can even hear it in the in the music of the 80s. Yeah, that well, I think that underground. Right. Yeah, I think there's I think the sort of punk new wave thing, you know, a lot of that was very sort of very much like another British invasion. You know, Nick Lowe and Elvis Costello, um, you know, to, to me were really like, oh, this is this is like an, another British invasion. This is like you, you become fascinated again with sort of British music and British culture in London. And I remember listening to the, you know, the ska bands, you know, the specials and that felt very 60s to me. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it, it was very the, it was the really good music, it had a little bit of a kind of feel for that you know it had a like a style um so through partially through new music too you become kind of you know re-interested in that in that age again you know and fascinated by it yeah well here's here's i think i've said my favorite part of the show like six times this is actually my favorite part of the show I, I call these the quick fire questions, even though the answers are almost always not quick. What is your favorite Beatles song? Hey Jude. I mean, there's no question about it. I mean, Why hey I, I think that's the. I, it's just, it's perfect. It's just, I don't know. It just that song. I don't know the way it makes me feel. I mean, I think a lot of people will, you know, pick that. I think that was the the song that was number one for the longest on the charts of anything they did. It just, I don't know. I've seen Paul perform it and it is like, it's an amazing moment. It is yeah. like that, you know, when everyone the whole has ending their flashlights on and right. know, an entire arena is just singing. Da, right. Da, da. From beginning, you know, that great cold opening to that long fade. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, he's such an extraordinary songwriter. It's just, I don't know. What can you say? 
<laughs> I'm not a, I'm not a fan of people that trash Paul McCartney. Uh, you know, he just I, I love him. He's just extraordinary. The, the songs that he's written, you can take a, an album that would be considered not one of the best Beatle albums like Let It Be. And think of the songs of his that are on that album. Let It Be, Get Back, The Long and Winding Road. I mean, the, the, the ability to write songs is just his sense of melody, his sense, his, his just his sense of, you know, structuring music, writing a song. It's just, there's not too many people that can touch him, you know? And, and I love the solo stuff and I love Wings, you know? Um, so... Hey Jude is my favorite. I think maybe after that it would be While My Guitar Gently Weeps. I think um, I, I, I might pick that number two. Uh, on the flip side of that question, what's your least favorite Beatles song? You know, there's probably songs that will come on the radio that I'm sort of like, eh, I don't want to really hear that. Or, I don't need to hear that. I mean, most of them are probably more of the sort of earlier things, the cover songs are not really my favorites. I'd rather hear Beatles songs written by the Beatles. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like rock and roll music to me is sort of like, I get it. Okay. Not one of my favorites. <laughs> you know? So if you if you hear rock and roll music on the radio, you'll be like, mm, eh, not for me. Today. I don't know if I would turn it, turn it off, but I don't think I would consider it one of my favorites. There's really is not a bad Beatles song. Like I love... You know, um, you know my name. Look up the number. I know people will pick that as like, oh my Th god, that song's it's a awful. riot. It's awesome. I love that. You know, even you know, Revolution Number Nine. It is. It is. It has a place. It is significant. It is the White Album is not the White Album without that track. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, so I'm not going to go to listen to it. Of all the weirdness. Right. Right. I'm not going to go and say, wow, I really think I'm going to want to go listen to Revolution Number Nine right now. But I would never take that off of the white album kind of on, on a similar vein what is your favorite beatles album i mean the, here's how i'll answer the question okay okay i i think that i think that um beatles for sale and magical mystery tour obviously the u.s magical mystery tour are the two most underrated albums especially magical mystery tour okay hell yeah i okay I think that the most technically advanced album of the Beatles, where the Beatles had taken the Beatles as far as they could, is Abbey Road. Only because it's the last album that they recorded. Okay. Their most important album is Sgt. Pepper. I don't think there's any question about it. I don't think anybody would argue that. I think their best album is Revolver. Yes. I think that's the best Beatles album. There's there's a My running favorite... joke on this show that uh, there's a secret correct answer to that question, and okay. and you and you got it right. It's Revolver. Okay, okay, good. I win. My favorite album is the White Album. I think that's a, a lot of people will pick that one because it's two albums of Beatles songs, mm -hmm. and it's just it's 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 just fun it's it's like a, it's like the family album yeah it's like the it's like you pick up the family album and you page through it um <laughs> that album was the beatles in 1968 warts and all it's so much fun it's just a lot of fun it's just yeah. it's like a, it's like a raw shock yeah test yeah, there's piggies you know? why don't we do it in the road don't pass me by bobby's you know off yeah offbeat. you can never get tired of the white album how many double albums can you listen all the way, all the way through? I mean, you know, um, Electric Ladyland, um, Blonde on Blonde, um, you know, Wheels of Fire, which is actually some of that is live. Actually, you know, the Allman Brothers live at the Fillmore East. Um, you know, the the first Chicago album. Um, I mean, you know, it's. You know, London Calling, The Clash. I'll, I'll just I'll throw one album, not from the '60s or early '70s, in there. That's actually I mean, a tough um, one. Now, now I'm thinking, what other what's a double album I can listen the whole way through? Yeah, it's you know, it, it's not something that you you do a lot. You know, to sit down and listen to two albums all the way through. You know, I mean, there's always going to be tracks that are, you know, not the best or filler or just little sketches or. You know, whatever the case may be, 
you know? Yeah. And I, I have a feeling you saw this coming. The flip side to this question. What is your least favorite Beatles album? I mean, it's probably it's probably one of the early Capitol albums. Yeah. I mean, some of those albums are kind of they're kind of lightweight. You know, they're just kind of like, you know, they have maybe too many covers on them. I mean, some people think the Beatles second album is one of their best albums because it's such a great rock and roll album. I, I, I think so, the Beatles second album is great. But some of those, you know, people love to praise Meet the Beatles, but I feel like it's actually kind of a weak album. It's, you know, I find having a discussion about something about the Beatles that isn't good, uh, not something I could spend much time on. <laughs> well, well, luckily for you, we're, we're starting to wind up here. Um, the last, last question I'll ask you, when, when you listen to Let It Be, do you prefer the, the Phil Spector, the Let It Be Naked, or the Glenn Johns? I mean, it's all interesting to me. I, I grew up with the Phil Spector, you know, one. Um, you know, I don't, I'm one of those people who I'm a huge Phil Spector fan. I love mm -hmm. the wall of sound, that music, you know, the Ronettes, the, the Phil Spector Christmas album. I mean, to me, the Phil Spector Christmas album is one of the best albums ever made Agreed. period. Okay. You know, I, my favorite album of all time. I don't know if you, are you going to ask me that question? Uh, no, but you can answer. Okay. Well, it's produced by Phil Spector. It's all things must pass. So I love, I love Phil Spector. You know, don't forget, you know, Phil produced some of John's stuff that had, there's no wall of sound on that stuff. I know Instant Karma's got sort of the kind of wall of sound thing, but, you know, he's a lot more versatile than people think. You know, I love the long and winding road the way it is, you know. I, I know Paul hates it, and that's, you know, his prerogative. I'm, I'm amazed that there wasn't some way for him to stop it, you know. Um, when you see Paul perform and he does the long and winding road, okay, they don't do it with strings and a choir, obviously, but it has the feel of the Spectre Let It Be version, yeah. you know? So now maybe he's doing that because he just, he, you know, he, he wants the fans to get the experience that's the closest to what they grew up listening to on the record, you know? But, you know... I don't know. I like it all. Yeah. I, I think I prefer the original album. I think that's, you know, I, I think, I think it, it's just, that's what I grew up with. I love the sort of the silliest sides and all the kind of thing. I mean, once you get into the weeds with it, you realize that it's, it isn't as spontaneous, obviously, as it sounds where they're taking little bits and pieces from little different places and putting them in, you know, I haven't listened to the Glenn Johns enough to really have a, an opinion on it i tried to interview glenn for my book and i wasn't able to get an interview with him i would love to interview him he's one of the greatest record producers i mean the stuff that he's done you know with the rolling oh, yeah. stones and with the eagles i mean the small the list is sort of endless right i mean the stuff that he did at olympic i mean he was like the guy at olympic records mm -hmm. which is the other great recording studio really if you think about it yeah in in, in england that made you know, where, where rock records were made, you know, obviously the first, you know, particularly the first place where Olympic was the first location, you know, so um, it's all out there for everybody to listen to everybody, you know, everybody has their own opinion. I'm not one of those music critics who even considers himself a critic who likes to sort of foist his opinion on other people. I, I'm much more interested in this sort of journalism the sort of like documenting things and then people can decide for themselves what they like and what they don't like or what they believe is true or what they believe isn't true. Or, you know, I'm not, I'm not here to sort of, you know, say you have to listen to this or you have to listen to that, or if you like this, you're wrong. You know, I'm not a fan of that. Well, uh, not, neither am I. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll edit out the silence. 
That's okay. Um, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, so where can people find you and your books? Well, I don't have a website. I'm probably the only person left in America who doesn't have a website. Uh, <laughs> but um, if it makes you feel any the, better, I don't have a website yet. Right, but you have a podcast, which yeah. is very cool, you know. But things like that are in the works. Let, I'll just say that. Yeah. Um, my Dylan book is is uh, my that's my first book is out of print. Okay, but it is you can find it. It is you know it's you know it's available on sites that have used books i think even amazon has it it's it's mostly a sort of a coffee table book with a lot of photographs in it it's not any sort of definitive text on dylan um the let it be book is widely available in bookstores um through amazon um it's it's um you can get um audiobook version of it i I'm, i believe there's a kindle version of it um, it is available for those of you who speak either Italian or Japanese. It is available in those languages. I don't speak either one of those languages. <laughs> um, it, it is, some of it has been anthologized um, in a book. Um, I have written things that have appeared in other books, including... Uh, Ken Womack's book that he edited that came out last year. Uh, I have a segment in there all about the, 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 the Beatles, let it be rooftop concert. I believe that's what I wrote about. It's a little, little hazy. That's the Beatles in context, right? Yes. Um, I know Ken, Ken came to me and asked me if I would contribute to that. I was honored. Um, Ken is one of my favorite people who writes about the Beatles along with People like Bruce Spicer, who I, I've heard on your show. I heard the interview with Bruce. Uh, as, as Ken um, would say, Ken, Ken's good people. Right, exactly. Uh, Mark Lewison, who I, I know and I've, I've interviewed. I, I, I wrote about um, TuneIn on two occasions. Um, I, wrote a, I interviewed him when the expanded edition was finally published in the United States. I did an extended interview with him, a Q&A, over email. Um, but I've interviewed him many times. Um, so, you know, hats off to him and Roy Harper. Um, so, um, you know, I, I just, I love being part of this little club of people who writes who write about the Beatles. Um, I don't consider myself a scholar like some of these, some of these folks, their knowledge is extraordinary. You know, there is, a, there is another book on the let it be sessions by uh, Doug Sulpey. I mean, Doug is the guy who really owns this space. Um, I mean, he has written about let it be to, to an extent that is extraordinary. I mean, I don't think I could have written my book, you know, without the stuff that he's done, you know? So I don't know if you're aware of Doug, yeah. but um, I, I highly recommend um um, you know, his books, there's so many great books on the Beatles, you know, and, and, you know, some people say, Oh, another book on the Beatles. Do we really need another book on the Beatles? And it's like, yes, I hope they keep coming. You know, I mean, they're just, they're the books on the BBC are great books. The Kevin Howlett books yeah. on the, on the BBC recordings, beautiful, uh, beautiful book. The, the, um, the, the, uh, regular commercial edition that's in print. Because his, his original edition, I believe, is out of print. Um, you know, uh, great stuff. The Barry Miles books are really great too. I really like his books. I'm a big, I'm a big fan of diary and, and chronology and um, recording books. I really like those books a lot. There was a John C. Wynn. Am I saying his name correctly? I uh, sure. His books. Those books are amazing. I love those. I love those books. You know, I love all the books that are about like specifically about like Hamburg or specifically about Liverpool, you know, where they really get into the nitty gritty, you know, those books. I love all these sort of discography books. Um, I, I could I, I could just do nothing but read those kinds of books. I love that stuff. Me too. But anyways, uh, Steve, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. This has been great. I, I enjoy uh, talking about the Beatles. I love your podcast. It's, it's very uh, 
informative but lively and fun. Well, thank you. I'll, I'll use that as a tagline. Go right ahead. Informative but lively and fun. Yes, including even even including the ringing telephone that should never have happened. Oh, <laughs> you know what? The ringing telephone added a quality. Okay. <laughs> but to everyone else out there, thank you for listening. You can go home now. Bands on the Run is produced by Ethan Alexander. Additional voiceovers by Richard Fulton. This has been a Showtown production.